The Three P Champions podcast is brought to you in part by Art in Motion, where we create moving pictures. Send us your family photos, home movies. Give us a call. We'll do a Zoom interview with you. Turn it into a loving, customized tribute. It'll be the greatest gift you'll ever give. You can find us at www.artinmotion.tv. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of 3P Champions. I'm Rob Stoller in Philadelphia with Greg Stern here in Seattle. Ooh, baby. Today's subject of the 3P podcast is an extraordinary guy, though he's so modest, you'd never know it unless you heard it on our podcast. Steve Kelly has been an acclaimed writer, a news writer, sports writer. He's been to war zones. He's covered major sporting events. He's kind of done everything. And now in his retirement, he's a volunteer teacher teaching young kids to write. And he's maintained so many relationships from his career. Just an extraordinary guy and so engaging to listen to. We think and we believe you'll think so too. Another one of Greg's contacts. Greg, tell us a little about Steve Kelly. Yeah, I know him, Steve from the uh, Seattle Times paper here in, in this area. He covered sports, pretty much all the sports for years. Not a controversial writer, but he told the truth about a lot of stuff, whether that's coaches or players. So I always saw his name and always wanted to meet him and finally did. But I'm going to just tell a few things up front here that people won't know from our conversation. He's a five-time National Sports Writer of the Year. He's covered nine Olympics, Super Bowls, NBA Finals, All-Star Games, the Masters in golf, the U.S. Open. And I saw a little article that was written by somebody else. I think they mentioned his boss had said that while he was at the Seattle Times, he had written 3,446 columns. He's a great guy. He's got a great story. He worked hard. He played hard. He, he helped people. And uh, I think people are going to like him. He's the last guy in the world to brag about himself, but he has such a fabulous way of relating stories. And he's a 3P champion. He has the passion. He's always had a purpose and one of the most principled guys we've met. So without more talk from us, here's Steve Kelly. Yeah, I've always had a passion for sports, but I've also had a passion for education, teaching. I've taught even when I was working at the Times, I taught writing to kids from second grade to uh, to college. <laughs> I remember the first year the teacher asked me to uh, teach second graders. I said, "Do they even know words? What you know? They're gonna, how can they write? Do they? I'm not sure they speak yet." And it turned out they were great. What did you enjoy most about that? The evolution from day one. I was telling Greg last week. I run this thing with the Sounders called the Sounders Media Institute, and we bring in like 20 kids for the summer, ninth, tenth graders in underserved communities, and teach them sports writing. And the, the first day of class, you know, I, I'm all revved up. We're doing orientation. And I say, how many kids love to write? And look around, look around. One hand might go up, you know, uh, yeah, okay, okay. And at the end of the course, guys are swapping, guys and girls are, are swapping uh, ideas for lead paragraphs, trying to get a quote here, quote there. I mean, just they're sports writers. Mm. And, uh, the teachers are amazed, like uh, – uh, one of the teachers helps me out, and he told one one of the English teachers about uh, what we were doing, and she said, "Oh, good luck," and it turned out great, and it's been great. We've done it for three years. We're going to try to do it this summer. It's it's one of the best things I've ever done. Considering some of the things you've done, that's a big statement. Well, you know, I've been to Afghanistan during the war in Kosovo, and I mean, I've climbed Kilimanjaro twice. I've done all those kind of fun things, but I swear. As, as mundane as it sounds, teaching 
a room full of fourth graders who, and getting half of them to be interested is every bit as exciting to me as anything else I've ever done. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being serious. And this, uh, the Sounders Media Institute, I mean, I, I love that. And I, I, like I say, I love the evolution from day one until the last day of school. How did you get involved in that initially? Well, if I hadn't been what I was, I would have been a teacher and a coach. Yeah. So it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. My wife was a teacher. And I just one day started calling elementary schools in the Seattle School District and said, hey, I want to do something. And <laughs> teachers are always looking for a break. You know, give me, you'll give me an hour. God bless you. You know, <laughs> so uh, it's always worked out really well. That's Good. A, the quickest job you'll ever get. Take yeah. place with teachers. You know, the volunteer pay is awful. I, you know, I have to admit that. The paychecks are a little slim, but no, it's it pays for itself over and over again. Yeah, I've taught for a long time, for a few years full time, and a lot of years adjunct, and the work's the same, but the pay's different. But you know, if if you don't get gratification out of seeing kids evolve and years later have them tell you how much you meant to them, then it's probably not the right profession because the, the rewards are mostly in the relationships. Absolutely. But let's switch gears a little bit because you did have such an interesting uh, former profession. Tell us about some of the relationships you formed as a writer, sports writer or journalist in general? Because, you know, I saw a picture with with Bill Walton today and, and I know you have relationships with Peyton and Griffey. And tell us about some of those things that will remain with you forever. You know, I was a columnist. So you make enemies as a columnist. One of my philosophies is if I criticize somebody, if I write a column ripping Griffey, I try to, which is hard to do, by the way. It is, yeah. I try to be in the clubhouse the next day. I remember once I was talking about the Mariners pitching staff and it was Randy Johnson, basically. And so I, I said, uh, you know, there's that old saying with the with the Milwaukee Braves, uh, spawn in Spain in two days of rain. That, that was, mm-hmm. well, I said, uh, I said something like Mariners staff was Randy Johnson in four days of pain. And I walked in the locker room the next day and Chris Bazio was meeting me at the door and he kind of grabbed me by the shirt and he said, I'll give you four days of pain. <laughs> and but you know what that was it yeah. next time I saw him we talked and 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 it was fine and uh, so that's what I've always tried to do uh Griffey got into his his uh, first all-star game it, it was in Toronto and you know the game's on a Tuesday my Sunday column I had talked to uh Jim Lefevre who was the manager then and Jim said you know Griffey's great but he could be even greater and so we talked about that and so I wrote a column saying how, how good do you want to be, Junior? And, you know, he, I mean, he would do things, things today you don't even think about, but he wouldn't run out a, a ground ball to second. He, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes batting practice, he wouldn't hit the opposite way. He would just try to hit it into the upper deck every day, every pitch. Um, so I wrote that column, how, how good do you want to be? And so he goes to Toronto and I'm at home and I'm talking to my wife on the phone and uh, Paul Waiting comes in and it's Junior. And he's in Toronto now. And I said to my wife, well, Junior's here. I'll, I'll, she will call me when it's when you're done. So an hour goes by. She calls me and says, "You never called." I said, "I'm still talking to him." Another hour goes by. Same wow. thing. We talked for two and a half hours, and it wasn't like a shouting match at all. It was him trying to explain the pressure of growing up as Ken Griffey Sr.'s son and then being the next superstar. And sometimes it's hard for him, and sometimes 
he doesn't do everything perfectly because you know he gets tired of being in the spotlight, I guess. And the veteran players were jealous of him, and he told me some stories about that. I mean, two and a half hours of just like, you know, I wasn't taking notes at first because I thought it was going to be another Chris Basio thing. And uh, then I'm like scribbling like crazy and, and saying, can I use this stuff? And, you know, he said, yeah. So that was the beginning of, a, I think, a pretty good relationship. Unfortunately, I don't like the way he left. You know, he left the Mariners and retired, basically, um, in the middle of a game left the dugout, went in the clubhouse, packed his bags and drove off. I thought that was horrible. And so I didn't, I, re- I didn't know that. I didn't remember that. Everybody's forgiven him. I've forgiven him, but he hasn't forgiven me for uh, writing that. I, I wish it was better for sure. I haven't seen him in a long time. You know, there's most of these guys like Gary Payton. He's a grown up now. You know, he's, I've, <laughs> I've known him since he was 20 years old. He's an adult. It's kind of disconcerting at first. You know, it's like, I mean, he called me up once and said, hey, Steve, Gary Payton. And I'm like, okay, who's this really? You know, because <laughs> usually it would be, hey, Steve, and then a string of expletives. So he's a real, he's a pleasure to be around now. And uh, Sean Kemp and I did Shakespeare together. You got to Google Sean Kemp does Shakespeare. I, I was on the board of uh, Seattle Shakespeare Company, and we did a scene from uh, Taming of the Shrew during our uh, fundraiser. We were scheduled to have two rehearsals. Sean didn't show up for either. Finally, I called his wife and said, "You got to get him here for the. You got to get him here for the show. I'm, you know, I'm going to be embarrassed. It's going to be, you know, the director is going to be mad at me. The director filled in for him during the audition, and he stood on a ladder to kind of emulate Sean. And I don't know, maybe an hour before the show, Sean comes strolling in from down at the Seattle Center, and uh, I'm, I'm, thank God he 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 didn't have a script. He he didn't know what to do. We were allowed because we're not professionals we were allowed to have the script with us when we performed but he was I, this was serious for me I mean there's all actors in the audience and, and I, I I drove my wife crazy going over the lines and over the lines and over the lines and you know I felt like Richard Burton at the end I had worked so hard on this Sean did Sean, Sean was all over the map he didn't follow anything and I'm trying to catch up to where where he is and and finally he he's um he's preparing a meal for me and he's asking me what I want and Everything I tell him I want, he doesn't have, or he, he suggests something else. And so we get into this argument and, and I'm saying, and he finally says to me, and you don't get no beef, Shakespeare, you, know, <laughs> you don't get no beef. And the play, I, first of all, he came out in a, in an apron that said Kemp in the sonic colors It said Kemp across the front and uh, is number 40. And he walked onto the stage. I, I was already on and I was doing a little thing. And he walked on and the place went crazy. I bet. And I mean, what a great sport to do that. You know, I mean, I, I was scared to death. I, you know, I can't imagine what, you know, because he's a celebrity. Yeah, yeah, he's a little gutsy. <laughs> and it was on ESPN. Um, if you Google it, Sean Kemp doing Shakespeare, I think oh, it's, boy. they'll find it somewhere. But, um, and again, it's, that's a guy that, you know, we had our run-ins during, during the years. But, um He's a terrific guy. My son and I did a podcast with him for a couple of years. We called it the K-Cast and Sean showed up. We told Sean that the K-Cast was going to start at 10. It was actually going to start at 11. So most of the time he made it by 11. <laughs> I mean, he's a tough guy to pin down, but uh, he was great. And we had a, a little segment every, every show called the Rain Man Rants. And he would rant on whatever topic he wanted. And it was crazy. It wasn't... Uh, you know, Edward R. Murrow or anything, but um, he, he knocked it out. 
I think that's pretty cool you do all that. Oh, it's so much fun. So you were always sports involved. Was it primarily basketball for you? No, uh, I mean, you know, my line was when somebody asked me when I was working what my best, what my favorite sport was, I would say the, the sport I'm covering that day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, outside of MMA, I like just about everything. And uh, I love writing about everything. And, and, you know, golf is a great sport to write because you've got the elements, you've got the athletes, you've got the drama of, of the final round. Yeah. Um, boxing, I kind of hate myself for it, but there was a stretch there where I went to every big fight in Vegas. And there's something about the 30 seconds before the opening bell when Hagler Hearns are going at it or Sugar mm. Ray and wow. the place is going crazy. And you kind of hate yourself for for being so excited about it. But boxers are great guys to talk to, um, especially like local boxers who are trying to make it and, you know, just kind of fighting in the clubs. Every sport has its, its uh, I mean, if you can't write about sports, you can't write. Yeah. It's, you know, it pr the drama presents itself. I mean, I tell my the classes that I teach that everybody has a story. You know, go next door and talk to your neighbor. You'll, you'll find a story. But, you know, athletes all have great stories about how they've all had to overcome stuff. They've all had to work really hard to get where they are. Well, that's kind of been somewhat the theme of this, or, or it's been a common thread among a lot of the people we've spoken with here is that they have overcome a lot. But beyond having overcome a lot and achieved some kind of excellence or notoriety in their field, it's what they've followed that career up with. You know, none of them are playing anymore, but many of them are coaching, mentoring, teaching. A lot of them went into education. They're all educators to an extent, even as coaches. And I think it was those life experiences which made them very effective coaches. And I would imagine some of that's true with you as well. Well, I think for athletes, mentoring is a natural progression in their lives because they get mentored by so many people. There's a, there's kind of a feeling of uh, giving back. There's a feeling of um, I can still be, I'm, I know a lot of athletes who when they first retire, they're like, I'm useless. You know, I, I, I can't do what I've always done. And I think, you know, they find it through coaching or mentoring and, and they, they see other kids that they work with develop. Mm -hmm. And that gives them the, that same sense of purpose. And I was still thinking your last comment about mentoring. You know, I was an athlete too, but I always think of those guys, you know, like you said, they lose their purpose, they, they can't play anymore. And then, but, you know, all those guys at some point in their life, especially in sports, had, had a mentor. And I think that's kind of what drives you later. You realize the impact someone else had on you. And I think you realize through your sport, whatever you did, you can mentor other people. Because sometimes we talk about all the time, teachers and coaches make some of the biggest impacts people ever have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's sure true of me. Once you start doing it, you can see the results pretty quickly. You can see results in the first class you ever teach if you just reach three or four kids. For athletes, it may not be the same thing as, you know, hitting a grand slam. And for writers, it's not the same as producing your own stuff. But, but seeing other kids, seeing kids who can't even write, who don't want to write, who hate it, all of a sudden like it. I mean, sometimes uh, my fourth graders especially would say to me, Oh, Mr. Kelly, I have I have writer's block. And fourth graders, <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have t you don't have talker's block. So everything you're talking about, just put it on the paper. Put it in the computer. You know, don't give me this writer's block. You're talking a mile a minute. So just yeah. write it. 
Yeah. So you you mentioned quickly a minute ago uh, when Greg was talking about mentors and their impact on those they mentor. Uh, you said it's certainly true of me. Now, what does that mean? Who who impacted you? Well, I mean, in some ways, I, nobody was luckier than me uh, in journalism. First of all, I at the age of what twenty three was uh, working as a repairman for Sears, not, not you know not the stair, stairway to the New York Times. And I, I read a poem about Lake Chelan and packed up my car and drove out to Chelan. I had worked for a year at a paper in New York, Pennsylvania, but I, you know, I was green. To, but I thought I was so good, which you know looking back was a joke too. But I thought I was so good that you know when I drove across the Idaho-Washington border, editors would be. I'd send letters to every paper. And I thought when I drove across the border, every editor would be flagging me down and, you know, come see us. And you know, sure enough, I was driving a forklift in Chelan. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how valuable I was. And, you know, I got lucky and got a job in Centralia and a job in Olympia and then eventually a job in Portland. Talk, talk about coincidences and how they affect your life. Jack Ramsey was a coach of the Trailblazers and eventually I became the, the beat guy. And Jack had coached at my high school in Wilmington, Delaware. I think the first basketball game I ever saw when I was five or six years old, Jack was the high school coach. And so we sort of had that bond a little bit. His, his St. Joe's teams were my favorite teams of all time growing up. Hmm. So, so we would sit down a lot. He was a great teacher teaching me basketball. He's one of the few coaches that would say, you know, uh, why don't you come into my office at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? And I'll show you how we, you know, how we trap on defense or how we run wow. our secondary break. I mean, just, you know, cause he wanted me to get it right. Yeah. So we were, we were in his office one day and I mentioned one of my heroes was David Halberstam, who worked for the New York Times, won a Pulitzer, kind of blew the lid off of Vietnam and, and the, the lies that we were being told about Vietnam. Uh, I used to read him all the time. I saw him on the Dick Cavett show back, back in the, in the uh, early 70s. And um, Jack says, he's a good friend of mine. He uh, has a place in Ocean City right next to me. And he's coming to town tomorrow. I mean, it's like, holy cow. You want to have lunch with him? Oh well, uh, 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 yeah, I was scared to death. I mean, David's like um, bigger than life. He has the voice of God. We had lunch. He, he told me he was thinking about writing a book about the trailblazers that became the breaks of the game, which might be the best sports book ever written. Mm. Uh, and it's always in like Sports Illustrated's top 10 ever. It's all about race and money and its, its influence in uh, sports. His editor said, you're going to, and he wanted to do the Trailblazers because he had a, a association with uh, Jack, but his editors in New York were saying, nobody's going to care about a Portland Trailblazer book, you know, right about the Knicks, right about the Celtics. David's most stubborn man on earth. Anyway, long story short, he did the book. We traveled together for about a year and a half. He became one of my best friends. Uh, and you talk about a mentor. It, it was just unbelievable. And I would watch him. He would invite me into interviews when he would talk to various people around the league and just his relentlessness and his intelligence and his fearlessness, I learned from him. And he, he taught me a lot of things. One of the things he taught me that, you know, really helped me was there's a lot of writers who kind of curry favors with their beat people because they don't want to be cut out of the loop. You know, like, like a lot of White House correspondents, you know, tread gently over the president because they don't want to be banned from the White House. Well, David was banned by Kennedy, by Johnson, and his his advice to me was, "You'll all, if you're a good journalist, you're always going to have sources. So if the sources, like for instance, if the Trailblazers cut you off, 
there's people in the NBA that will give you, give you the same information if they respect you. There'll be players on the team who will call you up and, and say, look, I'm unhappy with my contract. I, I don't like the way Ramsey's playing me. You don't need Ramsey. You don't need the owners. You don't need the general manager if you're good. So if, you get, if they get mad at you, 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 know, you should have other avenues. So don't ever kowtow to the powers that be because you're, you're shorting yourself. You're cutting yourself out. And you're not being honest with, with the readers. But, I mean, we, we were friends to the day he died. When he would come to town, he and my wife and I would go out to dinner. <laughs> when, when I would go to New York, he would invite me to the... David had the biggest ego in the world. And he thought that everybody read every word he ever wrote and remembered every character in every book. And I was in his book in uh, The Breaks of the Game a little bit. And so he would invite me to dinner parties, which I hated. But, you know, there's Paul Simon and... Lauren Bacall and Dan Rather and all these people. And, and he would go around, he would interview, introduce me to Lauren Bacall. And he would say, well, of course, you know, Steve Kelly. And, you know, the blank look on all of their faces. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know they're, they're like, like Paul Simon, did he open for me somewhere? Uh, you know, Lauren Bacall, what movie was he in with me? You know, I don't remember this guy. <laughs> Finally, I said to him, will you stop that? <laughs> will you please stop saying that? That look is just about the most embarrassing, insulting thing I've ever had. So he stopped that. But he always included me in everything. And, you know, he would call me up. Um, he lived in New York and he would read something I wrote. And he, he would say, I had this voice of God, Kelso, you disappointed me today. <laughs> and, and that's not good. And uh, but he would tell me what I what he thought I should have done. I didn't always agree, but you know he made me way better, way better. You know relationships are all two way, so he obviously derived a lot from the relationship with you as well, even though you may not have felt that way at the time. He didn't hang out with you just to be nice to you. He obviously enjoyed your company and valued your opinion and respected your ability, I'm sure. Well, he treated me like an equal. And that's, I kind of took that from, from the way he treated me. But I've, I never expected that when I was uh, sitting in my, in my living room at midnight watching Dave, Dick Cavett and seeing David Halberstam on there. Well, he seems like he wore his principles on his sleeve. And that's kind of the definitive principle is not compromising to give yourself a better chance at whatever it is. What, what, what were your principles as a writer? Write what I believe. Don't write what I think the reader wants to, wants to hear. Don't write what I think um, George Carl wants to hear. Write what I think is the truth. Write honestly and let the chips fall where they may. And that, that certainly came a lot from David. And also from, I just would feel better doing that. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was cheating anybody. I didn't feel like I was gutless. You know, it's it's not comfortable all the time walking into a locker room after a game. I remember once Kurt Warner was sort of at the end of his Seahawks career, and he had one last great game. And I had written some things about the fact that he was on the downslope. And walk in the locker room after a win, and Kurt Warner had a good game. And first thing I hear is, where's Steve Kelly? Where's Steve Kelly? Where's Steve Kelly? Well, you know, here I am. <laughs> and he says, I don't want to talk to your ass. And so I said to him, well, how about talking to my face then? You know, I mean, it's, you got something to say to me, say it. And he didn't. But, um, you know, so I had, a, I mean, a lot, a lot of uncomfortable feelings, uh, wow. events like that. But I really didn't care in the end because I, I wrote what I believed. I don't know, but I'm guessing that people that were angry with you, I don't imagine a lot of them said you were a liar. Exactly. 
Exactly. They just didn't like hearing it. And, you know, I mean, yeah, my father-in-law used to say to me, where do you get off criticizing Ken Griffey Jr.? How many home runs have you hit? <laughs> and, you know, there is no answer to that. You know, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. He was a minor league ball player and a played professional basketball in a league in the Pacific Northwest. So he was, you know, he's a big, tough athlete. He was a coach. So he had that healthy um, dislike for sports writers. But, but yeah, there was a lot of that. It's like, how can you criticize? Jack Ramsey said that. How, how can you criticize? How many games you win? I mean, he would say that to me every once in a while. But again, it, you know, if I did my homework, which I always tried to do, if I had my facts straight and if I was forthright, it, in the end, they, they have to believe in that. And a lot of people that I had run-ins with, athletes and coaches, are friends of mine now. The, I would say the majority. And Mike Holmgren's a great friend. Hmm. George Carl's a really good friend. Lou Pinello was great. I haven't seen him wow. in a long time. Um, they were all great. Can I tell a quick Holmgren story? Of course. I was teaching at a school down in the, the uh, South Seattle, and I, I was having trouble playing kickball during um, recess, and fights were breaking out. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, hey, I'm not getting paid, and I'm here to help you guys, and you're not even listening to me you know, fourth graders, like they would care. So I, I taught one day and a couple of fights had broken out. And then I, I drove over to uh, Kirkland, uh, the Seahawks camp. And I bumped into Mike in the hallway. And Mike said, how you doing? I said, oh, man, I'm teaching and the, the kids are fighting and I can't get them to listen to me and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, sounds like I better go over there. Wow. You kidding me? So um, he said, uh, my secretary will call you in a couple of days. We'll set up a, a time. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's a nice gesture. He'll completely forget about it. Next day, his administrative assistant called me and said, here's, here's Mike's dates, what works for you. We set it up with the school. Just, just uh, These are fourth graders too, just the fourth graders. We had um, two rows of in a semicircle. We had a big uh, rocking chair for Mike. And Mike sat there for two hours. The kids were like, with one kid in the front row, who's now a, um, he's working in the, Biden administration, I think. He's working in the Democratic Party in some capacity. Um, he was sitting in the front row. He had lamp black on. He had a Seahawk jersey on. Wow. He, had, he had wristbands. And I mean, they, they were just like rapt attention. And, you know, Mike's like bigger than life anyway. This man yeah. comes in, fills up the room and two hours of just, you know, talking about discipline in a way that they understood, not like, you know, drill sergeant stuff. Talking about how you get much more out of it when you're cooperative and things like that. You know, no TV cameras. He didn't do it for any kind of publicity. He just came over this guy in the front row, BJ, he's asking question after question. And the Seahawks had just traded Daryl Jackson and Mike didn't want him traded. And uh, BJ says, uh, why'd you trade Daryl Jackson? That was, you know, that, that, that was a terrible trade. And Mike turns to me and he says, I wish BJ had been in the war room with me that day. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, what kind of I, mean, I don't think Belichick's ever done that, you know, and it's, I doubt it's, it. it takes a really special person. And Mike is that guy. Well, he's also beloved. I mean, and he also has a coaching tree that rivals any in sports history. And I'm sure those character issues are a big part of it. Yep. You know, I don't think Belichick engenders that kind of love and respect either. Everybody knows he can coach football, but. It all comes down, and Greg and I, we've talked about it with everybody. It's how much do you actually care about the person? You're right. You're Not right. just about whether he can help you win games, but how much do you care about the individual as a whole? And Mike, Mike was that guy, for sure. 
I'm certain that you bring that same kind of ethic and those same principles to your classes. And you're trying to actually help them become better writers and become better people. Well, I hope it's true. I've stayed in really good touch with a lot of uh, basketball players who are now graduating from college and hmm. writing letters to get them into grad school and whatnot. And um, we always go to a Mariner game or something uh, during the summer when they're all back. I don't want to sound like Father Teresa because I'm not, but <laughs> I volunteered children's, I used to volunteer at Children's Hospital. And um, I still occasionally have some 40-year-old person come up to me and say, hey, I was really sick and you came in and we laughed and you helped me get on the path to, to health again. And so that kind of stuff really, really makes me feel like I've done something good in this life, you know? What were you like as a kid? And tell me about your upbringing. I was a nerd listening to the radio at midnight when the Phillies are playing. I'm, I grew up back east and when the Phillies are playing the Dodgers and, you know, keeping the radio down low so my parents don't hear me and, you know, with a flashlight keeping score of the game. And, you know, I don't know what I would have been like with ESPN and with cable. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have graduated high school. I would have, you know, my, my mom and dad were, were hard on me in terms of, you know, making me do the work. But, um, I mean, I was, I was a sports nerd. I think I had my first date when I was, uh, I think it was a junior prom, if I recall. <laughs> it didn't go well, let's put it that way. Um, it, it wasn't a second date. <laughs> playing basketball, I was, we won a state championship. It was Delaware, so don't get, you know, don't be too impressed. But um, we won the state championship, and it was a huge deal in our high school. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence um, with people and um, in myself. And that helped a lot. But, I mean, I, I, was, a, I was a nerd and, and still am, really. I mean, I've got the PGA on right, right above the, <laughs> the computer right now. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, when I, when I started coaching, you know, I said, I'm not going to watch any film. I mean, come on, I'm just a volunteer assistant. I'm, and now I'm like, you know, I'm at the computer and I'm, you know, oh, well, let's run that play again. And ah, what am I doing? <laughs> Especially that game the other night. I don't, I didn't want to watch it. Sounds that. like passion to me, Rob. Exactly. A little exactly. passion. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I want to say something about your, uh, uh, you talked about principles earlier and something stood out to me. Two things. One is, uh, you know, one of my idols is John Wooden, but the one of his thing is be true to yourself. And I think it's really hard to do in this life. And when you talk about your journalism and sports writing, and I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on you to talk to people. You know they're going to be mad at you. You sticking to your gun saying, you know, I'm being true to myself. Uh, I thought that's an awesome principle. But when you go back and you say, now these guys are my friends, because it reminds me of being an athlete where, you know, I'm playing you, you're on another team, and you're good, and I'm good, and we hate each other on the court. But we both know that that guy's pretty good and I'm pretty good. I'm not going to admit it. But later, when it's over, you're like, hey, good game, man. You're pretty good. I think that's what people see in you. They know your job. They know you're being honest. And when it's over, he's a good guy. Tell the truth. Yeah. I think in sports, too, I mean, I was a competitor. I wanted to beat Art Teal's brains out and, you know, wanted to be the best. And I think I think players and coaches saw that, too, in, in the way that, I, you know, in my – you know, doggedness, I guess you would say. But I mean, I, I mean, I wanted to get everything right and I wanted to be really good. Yeah, I wanted to beat these other clowns, you know. <laughs> and, you know, Art and I are friends now, but, um, you know, we uh, we went at it really hard. In terms of preparation and discipline as opposed to your field, how much time do you, you spend preparing for, you know, your stories and that type of thing? Well, preparing for my career, you know, started like in, sixth grade every game I went this this is another nerd thing a lot of the games I went to when I got home I wrote a story about it wow 
My dad was involved in sports and we would sometimes go to Phillies games. They had us in the same press box as the writers were in towards the other side. There was a place for, for people to sit. And my dad knew the owner and one of the managers, Dallas Green, was a, was a family friend. So I would ride the elevators up with all my heroes from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Daily News. And I would just like, in the course of a three-minute elevator ride, just ask them a ton of questions. And they were great. I mean, they were all great. Stan Hockman and uh, Frank Dolson and all these guys who were really my heroes and still are. Just give me a piece of advice. I remember Dolson telling me, this is what I'm going to write tonight. This is what I'm looking to write tonight. So I would watch the game trying to think how Frank Dolson was doing it and then get the inquiry the next day to see if he did it that way. Um, just little things like that. My dad was a, was a part owner and he wasn't a rich guy. I mean, it was like $10,000 for this league. He was an owner of the Wilmington Blue Bombers. We're in the Eastern Basketball League, which is a precursor to the G League and the CBA. And there were only eight teams in the NBA then. So these were NBA caliber players. And they would come to my games. And there was a guy named Swish McKinney who, uh, true to his name, loved a hoist. <laughs> he shot a lot. He was good. He was really good. And he, he, would, he would have been in the NBA now. He would be a three-point. It wouldn't be Steph Curry, but he'd be pretty pretty good. And uh, Swish would come to my games. And when I walk off the court, he would grab me and say, you got to shoot more. And I'm like, where's the coach? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get kicked off the team. Swish, you can't do that. Um, but anyway, I got, to, I got to know those guys. I got to know the guys covering the team. I got to see, I got to go in the locker room after the game and see how those guys worked. That, that's like invaluable stuff. And even though I kind of got sidetracked with the repairman and the, the forklift driving, I, I, I sort of had a really good base that I knew when I started, I was, I was going to make it in some way. I'm lucky. I never wanted to do anything else. I couldn't do anything else, but I, I never wanted to do anything else. Well, it's still serving you well, and you're still passing it on. And it, it's really quite a beautiful story of someone whose professional dreams kind of came true, who pursued the dream and achieved everything you could have hoped to achieve and are still being productive and generous and providing education and leadership to young people. I mean, it's really kind of a magical trip. Well, thank you. Um, I guess I don't think of it that way. I just sort of think of it as uh, uh, this is what I did yesterday and this is what I'm going to do tomorrow and everything kind of the David Halberstam. There were, I've had all these great coincidences in my life stuff has appeared that I never thought would. Mm. And, you know, I, I always, I mean, my dad made me read the New York Times every day and the Inquirer and our local paper and uh, not just the sports section, but all the op-ed columnists going back to Tom Wicker and James Reston and some of the greats at the New York Times. When I first started, like at the Daily Chronicle in Centralia, I remember one day I was interviewing a, a 12-year-old Little League guy about his fastball and the next day, um, Gerald Ford was up at uh, McCord Air Force Base, and I was—I got to ask a question at his press conference. So, I mean, that was kind of the diversity. But I, I didn't just want to be a sports writer. I wanted to be a journalist, you know, whatever, wherever that took me. Well, that's interesting that you did get to experience the worlds of sports and politics and culture at the highest levels. You talk about turning tragedy into victory. My wife um, in 1991 had a brain tumor. And she's fine. She, you know, she recovered. Um, that was in 91. She's doing great now. Good. But um, I wrote a column about her and it was, um, she's my hero and the way she handled it and courage that she showed. And this uh, political activist in Seattle, uh, Donovan Cook, liked it and wrote to me. And I'd always wanted to meet Donovan. 
It's like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this. So I called him up and we <clears throat> hit it off immediately. We became best friends. Our families became best friends. And uh, he did a lot of work for um, Save the Children. And he went to Afghanistan during the war. He went to Kosovo. He went to Africa. And I kind of, I was like the little kid who grabbed hold of his brother's leg and said, take me with you, take me with you. And so I got to see and got to meet a lot of war correspondents and see how, just see how the job is done. I never dreamed I would do that. And I, you know, it's not like I all of a sudden switched careers, but, you know, I was, I got shot at in Kosovo and, uh, you know, driving along the roads in Afghanistan and not knowing if you're going to make it from point A to point B. Uh, I played golf in Kabul. I'm not going to bore you with the story, but the golf course. It doesn't sound boring, Steve. <laughs> not every day. Not every day. Someone goes no. up. And- <laughs> I mean, Double Beach sounds more boring than that. <laughs> well, the pro, the pro in Kabul had uh, it's a it was a beautiful nine hole course originally. Uh, reservoir. It's sort of in the valley, beautiful course. And then the Soviets came in, took over the country, tore up the golf course, put him in jail. Soviets eventually left. He got out of jail. He went back to his course, fixed it up. Taliban came in, tore it up. He, he escaped to Pakistan and drove a cab. He drove the Taliban out, unfortunately, temporarily. And uh, he opened up the course again, had just opened it up when we were there. And our security guy was a golfer. And I, I said, just, man, you don't have a course around here. He said, well, yeah, we, we got one. And we had one course in Kabul. It was, it was a cow pasture. And the guy had just started it again. And there's like Soviet tanks and armored personnel carriers kind of tipped over all over the course. And I drove one into it. <laughs> into an armed personnel carrier. I'm saying, okay, now what do I do? You know, what's, what's the, what's, what's the, the uh, USGA think about this? You know, what's the, what's the ruling on this? I mean, there's tanks up on the top of the hill. It was just crazy. And on one hole, I'm on my backswing and I see a guy there with a Kalashnikov rifle. And I, I stopped my swing and I, I was playing with the pro and I said, what's with him? And he said, he says, um, well, when you play golf in Kabul, you need him. <laughs> so I, was, I expected like Taliban to come down the hill or something. And I don't know, I've just had a lot of those. I never thought I'd have them adventures. And I learned about that's how you develop sources in wartime. You know, as you, you get to meet this pro and he knows this guy who knows that guy who who's involved in the, the government. And, you know, it was kind of always a mystery to me and I could kind of see how it worked. Sounds like you're pretty adept at establishing relationships. I think you have to be. I agree. I think it's, you know, it's kind of natural, really. I mean, this is weird for me t- talking about myself because usually I'm the guy asking all the questions. You've gone beyond that. <laughs> now, now you're the subject of interest. Look out. Hey, Steve, you got to tell Rob that story about your incidents with the jockey. Danny Sorensen, the only guy who ever took a swing at me. <laughs> I'd, I'd written this. It was one of the first columns I wrote at the Times, and he had been the jockey on this horse, Bella Brainier. And Bella Brainier was a great mare, and they had a lot of success. And then Danny started getting involved in drugs, and um, he used to be the hardest worker at Long Acres Racetrack. And he was missing morning workouts, and he wasn't as aggressive as he had been. He was aggressive in the jockey room with his other jockeys and, and with me, but uh, he wasn't aggressive on the track. And so I wrote a story about um, how this great relationship between this man and this horse had fallen apart. I talked to his uh, agent and talked to a couple of the other jockeys and they were they were real honest with me about him. And I wrote the story that, uh, that it's too bad that this, this relationship ended so poorly. And, 
and that Danny was in trouble emotionally and mentally and all that. He was still riding, but um, he had been put down by the by the stewards a few times for drugs. And so on a Sunday afternoon, I went was covering a race, and um, he comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really like that story." He was really jacked. Hey, I really like that story, Steve. Good story, Steve. Good story, Steve. And he takes a leap at me and swings, and he missed me. And a couple of guys in the jockey room pulled. Well, didn't pull us apart because I wasn't going to fight him, but uh, pulled him apart. But he would have he would have killed me. I mean, if, if it had just been the two of us, he would have killed me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, if it had to be anybody, I guess I'm glad it was a jockey. But, you know, not Maurice Lucas used to say to me all the time, if you don't get off my case, I'm going to give you one of these. <laughs> this is like that. Maurice yeah. Better, what? better, better to be fighting with the jockey. Yeah, for sure. So what's next for Kelso? I'm doing this with uh, fourth graders now. And man, it's hard in person. I just started. There's a girl in fourth grade who just doesn't care. And I looked up at her little square and she's leaning back and she has two um, cucumbers on her eyes. <laughs> like, she's outside, like she's outside. <laughs> oh, man. Hello. <laughs> oh. You, know, you got to get through to her, Steve. You got to get through to her. How are you going to do it? It occurs to me that you're you're kind of different from a lot of the other guys we've spoken to, and kind of your purpose is to do it with passion, and your your passion is to do it with principle, and your principle is to have a purpose. You know, it's like you're living these three words as your way of life. I think that's what you're imparting to these people is if you're going to do it, do it wholeheartedly. There's a fine line between hedonism and uh, altruism. I'm more into the hedonistic part of this. I mean, it makes me feel really good. Yeah. All of it makes me feel, even the worst day across the street or the worst, you know, the girl with the cucumbers, it's still, it's, it's the best. It's, it's a better feeling than I've ever had even writing. I mean, I, why, why is that? I, I, I don't know. It's so tangible, I guess. You know, I mean, I can see it day to day to day. Every day, you know, you have your, obviously you have your defeats, but every day that I do this, there's huge victories. It's, it's incredible. And, and seeing them loving it is incredible. So how does that make me feel? And they feel great. I'm coaching at this Bush school. There's not one kid who, not one kid and probably no parents who have ever heard of me. They don't, they don't read the, they don't even know what a newspaper is. Yeah. You know? And I don't care. I mean, I t when I tell them stories, you know, there are, they light up, you know, well, you know, I was talking to Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, I got his shoes, you know, I mean, it's, it's that sort of thing. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're a great teacher and I'm sure you're really genuinely helping a lot of kids. What else would you like people to know either about you or about life? I, I think people, especially um, <laughs> when you get to be my age, kind of shortchange themselves. They don't think they're valuable anymore. They, they sure don't think kids would listen to them. And I'm amazed at how fourth graders don't think of me as some geezer that comes in and, and bores them for an hour. I can't believe, I mean, I, I can't do the drills anymore like, like I should, but uh, most of them listen to me and they're like, oh God, this bald headed guy is, but, but they listen. And uh, I guess it's up to me to make sure that I say something worth listening to. But I think later in life, you, you don't understand how rich your history is and how that needs to be imparted to the next generation, whether they want to hear it or not. And I think once they hear it, I think that has an effect on them. You've experienced so much and had so many different interpersonal relationships that if you 
impart that to kids, you won't believe the impact it has. Well, I think the reason the kids listen to you, I would imagine is, again, because they know you care about them. You're not just there to hear yourself speak. You're here to make them feel better about themselves. Well, I do care. I got a lot of this from my dad, too. My dad was a banker back when banking was boring. He was the chairman of this thing back then. It was called the Delaware Foundation for Retarded Children. And he was the um, executive director. And he would bring me to all their events and, first of all, kind of destigmatize kids with disabilities and also kind of say, you can help these kids. And he, I mean, at first when he took me, I was like, God, I don't want to do this. And then it became like, this is fun. He introduced me to that. He was, he was the executive director. These are all like volunteer things he did at this organization called the Mancus Foundation, which uh, hired handicapped people. Mm. Uh, he, wow. again, they would have a facility where these people would come and, and women would do sewing and men would do carpentry, whatever and muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis, all different kinds of illnesses. Some, some of them were obviously hard to understand. And he made it so that, you know, I shouldn't be scared. I should value them. You know, they're smart people. They're just like you and me. They just have these handicaps. So, I mean, I've always been, I've watched him, you know, give of himself. And it's like, it's a little bit natural. That's just a fantastic story. And uh, I'm glad you brought it up because clearly it's had an impact on you. And I think he and they were ahead of their times. I mean, if somebody were doing that now, it would be revolutionary and sensational. Kudos to your dad and to you. And that's the way things should be. And I, that happens to be kind of a passion of mine. Disabilities are still terribly stigmatized. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who get stared at all day, every day, because they're in a wheelchair or they're, you know, little people or whatever. So those lessons are still valid today. Hey, guys, I got I got to get running here. I respect and admire you the way you live and the way you're living your life now. It's so awesome that you're giving back here. Staying young through basketball. I think our kids more than ever need that positive input from someone who's been through it, whether it's your career or just all your trials and your experiences. So Kudos to you. I echo Greg's sentiments. I really appreciate you being here. You're a real stand-up guy who's doing great things, and I admire you for it. Well, you guys have sort of motivated me a little more now, too. So thanks for the kind words. Yeah, you're welcome. Steve, thank you so much. You're welcome. Greg, as always, you're the best. Well, we hope you got as much out of Steve's interview as we did. Some other stuff that did not get into the final version because there was just so much fabulous material from Steve is that he's also now volunteering with, I think it's high school kids with drug and alcohol issues. He's counseling them. Maybe Greg can tell you more of that. He's just a modest guy who's had much more of an impact on so many people than he would ever tell anyone. And we're proud to have featured him on the 3P Champions podcast. Yeah, Steve's actually been a really community guy. He's spent his time volunteering for a long time. Obviously, volunteers at schools. I think he was teaching writing to like second graders and fourth graders. He's also volunteered at the Seattle Children's Hospital and uh, spent a lot of time there. I think he did some stuff with people with drug addictions. So really caring, community guy. I want to mention a couple of things from our talk. I love some of his stories. First, I thought it was amazing that one of his mentors was David Halberstam, the uh, Pulitzer Prize writer. And uh, he talks about mentoring, but he's also been mentoring himself. So that's pretty cool. I think right now he also mentors and teaches and coaches at a school where he's actually coaching basketball. So he talked about different stories of all the people he met and some of the things he did to 
kind of pissed off some of the athletes. But I love that story talks about how, you know, he spaced some of these men in arguments. But then the one time he, he met the jockey and the jockey was doing some wrong stuff and he called him out on it. And he came after him. I think he swung on uh, Steve. I thought that was funny. But uh, Steve's a great guy. You can tell he worked hard. Has so many experiences there's so many stories and many that we didn't hear uh, i did want to add one thing that i read before this that he didn't respond or didn't re didn't talk about in our conversation was that while he was in seattle as a sports journalist he also wrote under alter egos so some of the names were jim rat was this you know his alter ego and that was covering the sonics duck ponds covering the mariners and then red dog he would cover the seahawks so kind of a funny guy hard worker mentor great career and really an interesting man yeah and in re-listening to the interview i realized how quietly extraordinary steve kelly is and that thing with the jockey was funny he said maurice lucas also threatened him and he said <laughs> you know he's probably better off fighting the jockey <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah he always told the truth everybody knew it and everybody respected him for it. And I think he's just the ultimate relationships guy. Even people who had a bone to pick with him because he told the truth about him, many of them became lifelong friends. So a real exemplary guy. And thanks so much for listening today and come back next week for another uh, unique individual on the 3P Champions podcast. Greg, as always, you rock. Rob, you're the man. Thanks, kid. Love you. Bye, everybody.